It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters— with new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from The Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says skyscrapers and subways and stations staring up at the United Nations. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. And this is going to be part two of a two-part episode. When we were in the studio talking about the future of tall buildings and skyscrapers and vertical civilization, we uh, we got so into the topic that we ended up going very long. So we decided to split it in two for y'all so, so uh, as not to overburden your ears. Yes, mm-hmm. easily digestible chunks. Uh, yes. So if you didn't listen to part one, go ahead and go do that. And we'll meet you back right here. Yep. And now we're going to talk all about some engineering incredible feats and science fiction ideas and uh, probably some stuff about elevators. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, as long as you have caught up on the first episode, please continue with what we're about to say right now. One of the things that occurred to me when I was uh, first researching this topic is that when you think about it, from my perspective, I wonder what you guys think about this, a, a super tall building isn't just a building. Like when you think about a building, 
it's mostly pretty static. I mean, depending on how many you might have utilities coming into a home or something mm-hmm. like that. But if you, it's it's not just like building a very very large shed. Building a skyscraper is more like building a gigantic machine with many moving parts and functional difficulties you have to face and manage. Yeah, the taller a building gets, the more engineering challenges you are going to face. Yeah, and so I wanted to start with one example that's sort of uh, one of the frontiers of future super tall building design, water distribution. Right. So how do you get water to the toilets and the taps and the bidets and the recreational pressure washing machines on the top floor of a <laughs> recreational building? Recreational pressure washer, washing machines? Oh, you're not what? aware of the leagues? Never All mind. Right, okay, yeah. I've, I'm well, sorry. To get, uh, to, to get water up to the top of a really tall building, you have to pump it. I mean, you can't right. just rely on uh, on pressure from a water tower or something like that if you're going up above where a water tower sure. would be. Uh, you have to pump the water up, but the taller your building is, the more difficult, the more it costs, the more time-intensive it is to get the water from ground level up to the top of the building. Mm-hmm. So how do you get around this problem? Uh, well, you know, we already talked about one in in the in terms of the Shanghai Tower collecting rainwater. Yeah, that's an oldie but a goodie. And depending on what's in your rainwater, you might only be able to use it for certain purposes, like the gray water uses that Lauren was talking about. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, but another proposal that we'll get to later on is the Sky Mile Tower in future Tokyo. And I want to talk about this toward the end of the episode. It's mm-hmm. it's really, I think, more of an idea than a uh, than a real building proposal, but. It suggests an interesting solution, which is cloud harvesting. Have you ever heard about this? Uh, no, I hadn't heard about it before, but it does sort of make sense. The idea, it's almost like creating a, a surface of condensation so mm-hmm. that you can collect the water moisture that's already in the air. Exactly, yeah. So it's a method of using specialized materials to harvest water vapor from the air itself. And uh, one standard example, the one you might have read about before, isn't so much used in buildings, but it's just a standalone collector you might use where it's something like a big piece of mesh fabric that's specially designed in such a way that when it catches the wind, water vapor in the air condenses in the fabric and then drips down into the bottom of the fabric and eventually collects in a receptacle. Have you actually seen – I mean I've been seeing it on Facebook all over the place. I think it might even be a Kickstarter campaign. But it's it's a camping – it's it's meant to go uh, uh, be a, a thing that you take camping with you and it's uh, essentially some sort of, of uh, like a, almost like a mug – but it's designed to pull moisture from the air, condense down, and fill up so that you have drinking water right there. You just leave it out, and it's supposed to pull humidity from the air yeah. and condense that into water. I have not looked into it further to make sure that it uh, makes sense. But, I mean, <laughs> the, the basic principles definitely make sense. Whether yeah. that particular product works the way advertised, I don't know. Right. Uh, well, sure. in principle, this is not like an if thing. You you can use materials to collect water vapor yes. from the air. That's a proven concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know about the scale issues of applying that to the water needs of a 55,000 occupant skyscraper right. that goes a mile into the sky as the Sky Mile Tower will propose. And again, I'm going to mention that in a bit. Uh, but but it's a cool idea in general. I guess the the way this would apply to a skyscraper would mean something about uh, putting the ma- the special materials and drainage systems on the outside facade of the building. Mm-hmm. Although at that point you might need to start getting back uh, to, to reference our, our uh, climate episodes again into at least being aware of what that kind of 
moisture collection is going to do to your weather patterns around the city Mm -hmm. and whether or not it's going to have a detrimental effect. Yeah, it's kind of hard to imagine without having built it first. Yeah. But uh, there are other big challenges, and one of them we've already kind of alluded to. You you mentioned, like, the idea of traffic flow in these large buildings. But beyond traffic flow, just creating elevators that work in these environments is incredibly challenging. Yeah. Just try to imagine taking a normal elevator up 100 floors to your office in the morning. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the thing, the thing is, guys, is that if you're going to have an elevator pull you a couple hundred stories up into the sky, it's going to need some really serious muscle. And I've got some statistics from a really great piece that was in Scientific American in 2015 by one Larry Greenmeyer. And he was talking about the elevators in the One World Trade Center, which is uh, the tallest building in the Western Hemisphere at 1,776 feet. 1776, get it? I, mm-hmm. I got you there. Sit down, John. See, see what they did <laughs> yeah. there, um, which is f- 541 meters. And uh, Vote yes. It has 71 elevators that are driven by eight electric motors weighing 2.3 tons apiece, mm-hmm. which use 500 tons of counterweights. Yeah. Yeah, so you, you're talking, you know, you have to use these massive counterweights in order to uh, to get these elevators to to work the way they're intended to work. And also, uh, Joe, you were pointing out before we even started to go into the studio for the video uh, piece that ultimately it's not just the, the elevator that you have to worry about or the weight, but the physical cable as well. Yeah, I mean, as the cable keeps getting longer, so what what they would typically use in a system like this is steel wound rope uh, and then a counterweight and a pulley system. And yeah, so once you get hundreds and hundreds of feet of steel cable, that really starts adding up in weight in itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and just in terms of the tensile strength that you need and the material science involved in that kind of uh, equation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's it's kind of like we, we talked about this with our space elevators episode two, the idea that as as you get uh, longer, the weight gets gets greater, which means the strength needs to be greater in order which to handle the weight. The and, thickness needs to be greater. Which yeah, it just it just becomes like once you hit a certain tipping point, you realize this is no longer practical. Right. But another thing that I think is important to consider with the elevators is that they're not just for moving cargo or something. Uh, yeah, there, there's there's delicate human people uh, <laughs> shoved shoved up in these things. Yeah, so. it kind of reminds me of some of the often overlooked limitations on aircraft and spacecraft design. Uh, rapid acceleration is great on a crewed spacecraft unless it's so rapid that it renders unconscious or kills the passengers. Yeah, that's generally considered to be a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. frowned upon yeah. in most offices. Right. Now, I doubt we're going to have an elevator that would kill you, but there could be elevators that would be really unpleasant. Oh, sure. sure. I, I'm reminded of, of like Space Mountain. Like the amount of jostle that you get on a on an old roller coaster. Yeah. Uh, okay, so to, to get elevators to move both quickly and smoothly, the rail systems that guide them need to be as frictionless as they possibly can. But since elevators are moving vertically, their rails have to come in these short chunks that are going to support the structure, meaning that you need a lot of rail joints to connect all of them, um, which are bumpier than just a long stretch of rail, as you can probably understand. Mm -hmm. Uh, You also then have to account for stuff like the building's potential temperature changes and sway, as we were talking about in Mm -hmm. Shanghai Tower. And you, you just wind up needing to engineer all kinds of materials and systems that help absorb shocks and and kind of smooth 
smooth the ride out so that yeah. you're not rattling people's teeth. I would imagine that with all those joints, yeah, like you're saying, the the temperature changes. If if one section is slightly warmer than the other, it may expand a bit, which means that you have created a bit of a jostling sensation as the elevator passes that that joint of track sway, as you point out. Again, anything that could push these rails out of alignment could cause some, uh, if if not dangerous, at least uncomfortable uh, side effects. Uh, certainly. You also have to deal with air pressure and not just in the cabin, like we were talking about, your, your ears popping and that kind of internal discomfort, mm-hmm. but also in the shaft of the elevator, because mm-hmm. p- pulling an elevator car around means that you're also pushing around a lot of air and creating a higher air pressure in the direction that the cab is moving and a lower air pressure behind it. So that means that, okay, like if an elevator is moving up, the resulting air pressure could blow out the doors on the flow on the floor above it. Wow! Uh, and suck in the doors on the floor below it. Right. That's so in, cool. In other words, <laughs> yeah. I, I just I just imagine like if they had not thought about this with these super tall buildings, all I could imagine is going through the front door, walking toward the desk, and then immediately getting blown out the building because all the elevators are coming down to the ground floor, pushing all that air out into the lobby, and then you just shoot out like a bullet. Uh, so yeah, that's clearly something that you have to have some way to vent that air in a, in a way that's, yeah. uh, gonna be safe. Well, or just to, just to mitigate it through aerodynamic controls mm. on the elevator cab itself, on the gotcha. outside of the cab. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, shaft design at that point becomes very important. Um, uh, computer programming. Hey, if you guys have ever waited for elevators at, say, a busy hotel or a convention center, you know how tough it is for even very, Good computers to handle large numbers of requests in multi-elevator banks. Largely due to the fact that some jerk faces will hit both the up and the down button, no matter which direction they need to go, because don't, they figure they'll do it, get in the first one that gets there. Don't do that. No. Just never do that. It's just, the worst. If you need to go up, just press the up button. Just press the up button, because then the computer system can handle it and you'll get there faster. Trust me. Yes. Don't confuse computers. It's impolite. See you at Dragon Con. Uh, <laughs> I just use a personal gyrocopter and I'm great. <laughs> balcony <laughs> to balcony, baby. <laughs> go, go, gadget copter. There you go. Uh, but yeah, there's there's also another consideration with these super tall buildings and elevators, a very important one, which is what happens if something were to go catastrophically wrong and you need to evacuate the building. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know how like most elevator lobbies have those signs warning that, you know, in case of a fire or whatever, you should use the stairs uh, in super tall buildings. People would not physically be able to exit fast enough via stairs. Mm-hmm. So these types of elevators need to need to be able to keep working in the case of an emergency and also need to be programmed uh, to take people to like designated rescue floors. Right. Which is hypothetically the quicker, easier way to get people out in, in an emergency. Right. And in other words, you won't don't have to worry about uh, having to go down 120 flights of stairs. Yes. That sounds like a bad day. Yeah. No, that, that sounds like. Yeah. That sounds like there's going to be a horrible outcome no matter what. So, yeah, you have to think about that. That's. It's actually one of the the big challenges that I I listed when we were thinking about pros and cons and uh and I'm glad that you addressed it here because it's it's one of the ones that immediately jumped out at me. Uh other future technologies that people are considering in in terms of cuz cuz all of these are are pretty much expansions of typical elevator technology as it mm-hmm. stands today mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. but people are uh forward thinking indeed and uh 
So, okay, so we talked about tracks. What else moves at high speeds on tracks? Bananas. No, trains. Um, <laughs> and we've got maglev bananas. No, I mean trains. So why not, you know, motor-propelled magnetic levitation elevators? People have actually suggested this. Yeah. It, it's, it's an interesting idea. Yeah. And, okay, they'd use a lot of energy and they'd create a lot of heat that you'd need to figure out how to dispel. But you could have multiple cabs in any given shaft moving around at the same time. And mm-hmm. they wouldn't have to go just up and down. We're like basically talking about a Wonkavator. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the really cool idea here, yeah, the, it, allowing them to go in multiple directions means that you wouldn't have to wait on one car in one shaft. Like you said, you could have multiple cars moving around like in a circle so that you just have to wait until the next one arrives. Right. Yeah. It's, also, the snozberries would taste like snozberries. They would. Mm. Uh, I dispute you. I've got I've got five little guys outside who have a whole song about it. Well, I've got one really big guy. <laughs> uh, right now, none of these maglev elevators exist. Um, longtime elevator company Otis was playing with the idea in the late '90s, but eventually shelved it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thyssen Krupp, uh, which is the designer of the One World Trade Center elevators, mm-hmm. and a local company here for us, they're up in Alpharetta. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Um, they, they've got their own version called Project Multi, which is in the works. It's its vertical shafts would connect via these like horizontal turnstiles, which would let a single elevator cab like snake its way through a building as needed. And as of last summer, their plan was to test a prototype in Germany as of 2017. Yeah, I don't, cool. I don't know. So I think the idea of maglev elevators is a really interesting one and, and definitely has some promise in general. Uh, this particular company I'm not sure about because I I saw a piece kind of critical of their proposal in mm. uh, the – I think it was a tech opinion piece in Al Jazeera – and uh, so I, I don't know what to think about that. Also, it seemed like I was trying to find recent stuff on their proposal and couldn't. But maybe maybe they're just working on it. Yeah. Uh, the, the last that I could find about it was in the middle of 2015. So. Yeah. Mm. But, you know, who knows? Maybe they're they're tinkering Quiet, away. Quietly doing it. Yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting also is that we've seen some really cool um, proposals for skyscraper design, not necessarily meant to be put into practical construction. Sometimes it's more of a, here's a really interesting concept uh, that changes the way we think about what a skyscraper could be. Yeah. One of the ones I wanted to talk about is, like we said, I don't think anybody's going to build this anytime Mm -hmm. soon, Uh, but we can dream. It it was a really cool design from the Polish architecture firm, uh, not firm, it's a Polish architecture collective called Bomp. I think that was made from the uh, initials, the last initials of the architects who were involved. But it won an uh, Evolo design competition with the idea of this thing called the Essence Skyscraper. And essentially, this is a, a very tall building with multiple levels, each containing massive recreated natural environments of various climates. So uh, one way – I think the way I put it in the video script is that it's like a gigantic multi-level terrarium. Yeah. Uh, but another way to think of it is, is it's sort of like going through all the episodes of planet Earth with each level of the building. Right. So you have levels that are caves, jungles, desert, grassland, glaciers. And I love this idea. I wish somebody would build something like this because yep. that would be so cool to have right in the middle of a city. The concept yeah. drawings are really cool. Like the the one concept I saw, the 
entire exterior of the skyscraper was transparent. So you could see in and see these different environments at different, like they, they look to be suspended in midair because the, you know, the entire building was uh, transparent. So uh, it was a really sort of Star Trek-y kind of idea. And uh, like you had also mentioned in your script, uh, it gives you the opportunity to visit all sorts of different climates without ever having to leave the, your home city, uh, which, depending upon what you want to do, could be great. I mean, that could mean that uh, you, instead of getting on a plane and generating a larger carbon footprint for your vacation, uh, you go and you press a little elevator button and you go visit the Antarctic. Yeah, and I, I would certainly say that I wouldn't hope that it would be a complete substitution for ever going out into nature, but it, as something that would be close by without you having to travel a great distance for, for city dwellers, I think it would be a really great life-enriching kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I honestly, that kind of accessibility is lovely. Yeah, I just don't know how you would ever – like I can't imagine the energy – Needs for that building would be <laughs> modest <laughs> yeah. in yeah. order to maintain th- that many very different ecosystems. Yeah, yeah. You can't put the – or actually, I don't know. Maybe you could put like the desert room and the glacier room next to one another so that so that the, the, the offput of the energy from one could, could... – well, Then you're like, well, got to go into the swamp room. It's the one that goes in between the two. Uh, yeah, that was – It's lunch re- break. Time to go catch some crawdads. Yeah. <laughs> But it is a really interesting, <laughs> interesting uh, concept. Another one which we mentioned earlier, uh, the Sky Mile Tower. Yeah, this is another one that who knows if anybody will ever actually try to build anything like this. Mm-hmm. Right now, it's just a, it's an idea, it's a proposal, but it, it is a cool one, I think. Yeah. Um, and so, a couple of firms called Cone Peterson Fox Associates and Leslie E. Roberson Associates. Uh, have they recently proposed this thing called Sky Mile Tower, and it would be a tower in Tokyo. And mm-hmm. actually, it wasn't just a tower they proposed. They were talking about this whole idea called Next Tokyo 2045. And it imagines the possibility of creating islands of reclaimed land in the middle of Tokyo Bay. So if, yep. if you know what Tokyo Bay looks like, it's kind of an elongated uh, oval shape sort mm-hmm. of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the middle of it, there, there's a place where the land masses on both sides kind of come close together. And this would imagine creating this artificial archipelago across that area. And, and some of the islands are like these hexagonal yeah. things that, you know, they, they look extremely man-made. Yes. Uh, and the in whole the, I- in the concept drawings, I should say. Yeah. And the idea of it is that it would, it would not just be a place for, uh, for transit and for, you know, high occupancy buildings, but that it would also serve a function for the city, uh, in protecting the rest of the bay from extreme coastal weather events and breaking up incoming waves. Mm-hmm. Sort of like, uh, the idea of how can we continue to build, if Tokyo continues to grow, mm-hmm. uh, how can we continue to build in a way that also takes into account things like climate change, which could end up causing greater, more frequent violent weather events mm-hmm. uh and yet we still have this this other demand of continuing to grow mm-hmm. our, our city and, and furthermore the the obvious problem that we've seen with uh with with tsunami and stuff like that mm-hmm. oh yeah so so why call it the sky mile tower well because if actually built the tower would be about 1600 meters tall which is about one vertical mile or a kilo- yeah 1.6 kilometers so yeah our 
Oh, yes. Yeah, because that as, is correct. As I say, yes. like a mile being 1.6 kilometers yes. instead of just 1,600 yeah, meters. That is so tall. This would, uh, <laughs> this would make that, that other tower I was talking about that's actually in the process of being built, uh, look, uh, tiny in comparison. Yes. So, so right now, the tallest building in the world is the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. Yes. Uh, that's the, the biggest mega tall building that exists. And that is around 830 meters tall. Yep. So this would be almost doubling the height of the tallest skyscraper in the world right now. Which is already hard for me to imagine. I, without actually going to Dubai and seeing this, this building in person, it's very difficult for me to imagine a building that tall. I, I don't have a good I don't have a really good idea of how long a mile is aside <laughs> from like being annoyed by like three quarters of the way through it that I'm still walking. Yeah. So so if you were to imagine a mile straight up, that makes it even more challenging, right? Because most of us don't jump that high. So I'm unfortunately not Spider Man. Yeah. Yeah. When you when you hear the dudes at the gym bragging about their mile time, it's like, no, 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 I'm talking about a vertical mile. So <laughs> Again, like we were saying earlier, this is this is sort of a concept. It's not uh, necessarily something that's going yeah, to be put into. The, there don't there don't appear to be any plans to fund this or build it yeah. yet. Uh, but it, it, maybe it's just meant as more of kind of like uh, getting some ideas on the table, sort right. of inspiring people to say, hey, if we were going to try to do something like this, how would we do it? Right. And I think that's cool to do. Yeah, and it may end up being that it inspires someone to take perhaps a a, a less um, uh, you know, a less uh, extreme approach, but one that would incorporate a lot of the same ideas and philosophies yeah. from that design. Uh, one last thing I do want to say is if you're interested in the Sky Mile Tower proposal, you can read more about it. Uh, their proposal paper is hosted on the Council on Tall Buildings and Urban Habitats page. Which I didn't know there was a council for that. There is. Uh, so it, it is like the Council of Wizards. The one I wanted to – yeah. You must destroy this ring and build this building. The uh, the one I wanted to mention that I saw that I thought was really cool was a, a design that has uh, casually been referred to as the Mountain Band-Aid. And it's, uh, it was part of a, a skyscraper design concept design competition. I think it took third place in 2012. But uh, it was a response to China's mining industry, which – a lot of people view as being particularly destructive uh, to the environment and to people who live in the local area. Uh, it can impact their lives in a very negative way, particularly when you remember that China is our main source for rare earth minerals. So there are a lot of very uh, aggressive mining projects throughout the country. The Mountain Band-Aid looks like what would happen if you were to cover a surface of a mountain with a with a building. So the building the building actually uh, conforms to the curves and contours of the mountain itself. So it's a skyscraper in the sense that the mountain is scraping the sky. Exactly, it's as tall as the mountain is, but not taller. So it's well, not much taller. Yeah, uh, it, it juts out from the mountain's surface, mm-hmm. uh, which raises questions, right? Like, how would you get further up? The would there be special elevators that would go at an uh, at an angle so that you could get from the bottom of the base of the mountain up to the top? Like, Snaky maglev elevators. Maybe it's possible, but it was just a, it was really kind of a, a very interesting artistic design, and it was meant to be a way of saying let's let's place a band aid. The idea of healing the damage that has been done to 
uh, China's mountainsides and give back a place for the people who live there to to live, work, play uh, a place that is good, a good, you know, healthy kind of place to live. It's really interesting. Again, it was meant as kind of an inspirational concept, not something that would ever practically be built. But um, yeah, let's let's talk a little bit now. We've we covered all the kind of dream ideas, the engineering challenges, the fact that we do expect to see cities continue to grow based upon projections. Should we really invest in building vertical civilizations? What are what are some of the the reasons to do it? What are some of the reasons that maybe maybe not necessarily reason not to do it, but things we have to keep in mind? Well, I think the most obvious pro and the main one that we should think about is horizontal efficiency. Uh, it, w- it would bring – so if you have a city and you can concentrate it uh, into vertical volume, so you shrink it down and you have less distance to drive from place to place, it would just bring all of the city dwellers' activity points in life closer and closer together, meaning they spend less time, less money, less energy, and less carbon emissions getting from one place to another. Yeah. So assuming that you are able to – uh, live, work, and play in the same vertical city, yeah. then uh, it makes it much easier. Uh, it reminds me, actually, when when uh, my wife went on a tour of various homes, there was like this, this uh, thing that happens every year where in different neighborhoods in Atlanta, you can go and tour different types of homes to just to see how, how they're set up. It was when Pont City Market, the building that our office is in, was just showing off a model loft. And so she went to check it out just to see it. And she came back and talked to me about it. And I said, so uh, would you ever want to move there? And she said, no, because I hate the thought that you would be able to roll out of bed five minutes before you have to be at the office, take an elevator, and you're there where I have to go get in the car, <laughs> drive across the city. Yes. And yeah. I'm like, oh, so it's because you're petty. I understand. <laughs> All the best decisions are made out of spite. Um I, I was trying to think of a con, and I guess one that occurred to me, I hate to say this, it's kind of morbid to think about, but I do think maybe it's worth mentioning, is that when you're concentrating more and more people into more space, uh, especially if you're considering skyscrapers, uh, September 11th starts to kind of sure. come to mm-hmm. some people's minds, probably especially in the United States, and it makes you think that, well, if you're worried about the possibility of nuclear war or a large-scale terrorist attack or something like that, Gathering more and more and more people into smaller and smaller spaces is essentially a worst case scenario, making it, making it easier to do more damage to human life and, and human civilization with fewer strikes. Right. On, on the other hand, uh, like we've mentioned before, one of the cool things about trying to do this is <clears throat> you end up identifying what are your challenges? What are your barriers to actually making a vertical city uh, and a super tall building become a reality? Yeah. And once you identify them, then you have to start engineering a way to to solve that problem. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's a con when you're starting out, but it becomes a pro when you've designed all of this amazing new technology. Yeah, which could possibly be put to use in other applications, not necessarily just for your vertical city or super tall building, uh, which is very similar to what we say about pure research. Like you never know what the benefits will be when you set out to do something like this. So uh, I would say that's a pro. There are other cons as well. I mean, obviously, we, we mentioned the the in case of emergency one, like how do you effectively evacuate a building that has that many people 
in that small a footprint. Like, right, like right. It, you've got a huge amount of floor space collectively, but when you look at the actual base of the building and you think, how many people are represented in this square footage at the base? It's enormous. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. So it, you have serious traffic issues you have to think about when you ha- in in the case of an evacuation. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. S- speaking of serious traffic issues, uh, roadways are not necessarily meant at this current juncture to handle the amount of of pedestrian traffic that would start happening in cities if we started building these giant vertical towers. Uh, I agree with that. But uh, then again, I think that that may be due to the fact that we sort of have hybrid cities right now. Mm -hmm. We have hybrid vertical and horizontal cities. So because you've got all this horizontal sprawl, you've got a lot of drivers Mm -hmm. who say, well, you know, I don't live particularly close to a train station or anything like that. So I don't. uh, So I so I drive into work. Um, if you had everybody gathered together in a pretty close area, you might have a much better case for almost everybody using public transportation and very little actual vehicle ownership. Yeah, or, or walking. Yeah, the, the longest part of your commute would be catching that elevator in the morning. Or yeah, whatever. yeah, I think it could be interesting if you get to a point like taking this to the science fiction extreme where you ask someone, so uh, where do you work? So, oh, I work over on floor 273. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've seen that on my way down to floor 212 when yeah, I go Yeah, it's a for nice lunch. neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, and, and then and then the petty thing would be like, well, I want to live in this building because this is where my office is. Well, but but I work in the building next door, and that's just a no. That's just, that's a no-go. Yeah, that's I have a deal to breaker. get up and get in the elevators. And well, yeah. jo- Joe and I also talked about what if you went to the, the dystopian extreme where your entire society is contained within your vertical building, and you then have your vertical building have very little contact with other vertical buildings. Yeah. So then eventually you get to a point where so generations th- thousands double. of years later you come out of the buildings and meet the people from the other buildings, and and, and you're all very different genetic strains yeah. at that yeah. point. Yeah. Like they, they look like the grays at that point. Yeah, yeah. Occasionally you have to do genetic uh, genetic exchanges just to keep everyone <laughs> viable. And now, granted, that's that's like Terry Gilliam level science fiction right there. But oh uh, yeah, yeah, you know. that's that's pretty far out. Um, uh, bring, bringing it back just a little bit from there. Uh, yeah, you, you've got that that thing that I was talking about a little bit at the top of the show, where uh, other infrastructure, like like getting enough water to that building, getting enough food to that building. Uh, we're we're having we're, we're seeing problems, and we talked about this in the Megacity episode a little mm-hmm. bit. Uh, we're already having problems. Uh, Getting enough energy and food and clothing and water to to everyone who currently lives in cities. Yeah. So introducing a whole new element, it, it just it's not an insurmountable problem. And it's certainly the kind of thing that that I hope that this kind of line of thought brings about new solutions to. Right. But it's something it, I mean, it, it could cause some serious gro- growing pains in the meanwhile. Well, And, mm-hmm. and the, the real issue here is that the growing pains are happening whether we go up or we go out. Right. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. that's the trend. So so it's important for us to look at those solutions first because those problems are going to hit us no matter whether we choose to build super vertical civilizations or not. Uh, but this has been a really interesting discussion, uh, largely uh, uh, fanciful toward the end, but that's – that's the way I like. I like to end forward-thinking episodes. Uh, guys, if you have any suggestions for future episodes of forward-thinking or you have any questions or comments on the stuff that we've talked about today, write us. Let us know. Our email address is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com or drop us a line on Twitter or Facebook 
At Twitter, we're FWThinking. Search FWThinking on Facebook. We'll pop right up. You can leave us a message there. And we'll talk to you again as soon as the elevator gets here. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit ForwardThinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.